In 2015, my kids and I went to see Aladdin on Broadway. Between the sword fights, the spooky voice, and eight-minute friend-like-me dance extravaganza, I was particularly captured by Courtney Reed's Jasmine performance when she says to her father, why can't a woman lead the kingdom? Courtney originated Jasmine on Broadway, leading in that role for five years in New York, on the West End in London, and on tour in Los Angeles. Success is sort of leading by example and inspiring other people because you are leading by example, not because you're telling someone how to lead. That really shows because nobody wants to be told what to do. In this industry, you got to come in with a confidence and that's the difference. It's like you're confident, you're not cocky, you're confident in who you are and you're confident in your abilities. And that will then in turn make the person behind the table go, oh, I'm confident in your abilities as well to lead my company, you know? Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce, and I welcome you to drop in as I talk to my C-suite friends about what makes them tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories we share through the decades spent growing up in our careers. Mentor DNA is your backstage pass to learning from these inspirational leaders. Thanks for tuning in. Oh my gosh, my very first job. Is it first acting job or job job? Job job. Oh, it was a caddy. It was a caddy. And this is hilarious. At our local country club, I, I, I had really you know no how to experience golf? golfing at all. No experience, zero. But my grandpa and my dad were, you know, great golfers. And I was dating a boy at the time who was a very spectacular golfer. And, and in fact, I think he was going to make it to state, but I, I was the reason why he didn't make it. I think <laughs> because he was so consumed with having a girlfriend, but he said, oh gosh, you got to be a caddy with me because then we can, you know, go out together and, you know, you make really good money and all the guys are going to pay you a lot of money because you're hot. So, and so that's what my first job was. And to be honest, it was great. You get good exercise. You, I got to hang out with my boyfriend and I got cash at the end of it. It was it was the best summer. Now, did you carry people's bags? Like oh, I sure caddies did. are supposed to be good golfers though. What, how do you, oh. how do you, how do you help on that? Yeah. Well, he gave me some pointers, John Hunter. He said, you know, when they, when they swing, just say, yeah, nice swing and good drive or, you know, stuff like that. He just told me what to say, you know? And every time, you know, I would say that and they say, so do you golf? I'm like, mm, no. <laughs> oh like, my like oh we're stuck I got my sister into caddying in fact and um she was she's three years older than me and so you know she was a little more womanly and she would have these guys that would request her every single time she did not play golf she didn't know they just wanted to have like a hot girl carrier oh <laughs> their bags gosh I mean that's one step up from the beer cart girl right I mean that is crazy you were a caddy so you how old were you I was 15. Yeah, I was 15. So you started young. Okay. And yeah. from there, what, from there, where did you go after then being I, a caddy? After, after being a caddy, I was a lifeguard. Ooh. And that was actually really tough. That's a tough job. You know, you think they're just kind of sitting there doing nothing, but you have all of these drills that you have to do and you learn CPR. And sometimes they, they come in and they, they drop a you know, a, 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 a dummy body, like at the bottom of the pool, you have to come and get what? it out and perform CPR and everything. It's, it's such a high stress job. And I also taught, cause I was on swim team. So I also taught, um, lessons to little kids during in the morning. So, you know, they pay you like pennies, <laughs> oh pennies and you're there all hours of the day. And then you have to, um, clean the floors at the end of the, um, when everyone's out of the pool, you know, at the end of the evening, you're just 
scrubbing the floors. Oh my gosh. And so that was through your high school years. Why didn't you continue caddying? Did you break up with John Hunter? Yeah, actually, no, he broke up with me on our two year anniversary. It was very, very upset. And then I just received a bunch of, you know, drunk dials. I miss uh, you. I oh love God. you. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Love John Hunter. He was a good guy. <laughs> and so from the lifeguard, where did you head? Then you were I in really, college. Then I was in college and I worked at the, now this is funny, full circle. And I, I haven't really thought about this, but I worked at the front desk of the very tiny gym at our uh, college that shared with the Columbia College. It was Roosevelt and Columbia shared this tiny little gym. And I used to work out there all the time. And I thought, well, I'll make a little extra cash and I'll work the front desk. And I worked the very, very early morning hours. So I didn't miss any class or anything like that. And I don't even know why I did that. Maybe just for extra cash. It's not like I needed to, you know, a lot of money because I was spending a lot in college, but my now current boyfriend became my boyfriend because he used to walk into the gym. And at the time I was obsessed with this show called Smallville and he looked just like Tom Welling to me. And I thought, okay, this is going to be my boyfriend. So he, he would walk <laughs> in and I would take his ID and, you know, kind of flirt with him every now and then. And then he became my boyfriend. We dated for like four months and then, you know, that was it. He was like one of my little college boyfriends and, and now a full circle. He's my, he's my boyfriend now. He's like my person. It's crazy. Oh my gosh. And how many years ago? That was a while ago. Yeah, so you 15, guys reconnected. Yeah. Like 15 years ago. Reunited and it feels <laughs> so good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that was your college gig. Did you work there all through college? So you've been, you've worked, you, you have a very common theme with all of my guests is that they all started very early and they all had jobs all throughout. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, it's so interesting because I always sort of thought of myself as only having acting jobs, but really I kind of did have other jobs. And I think the only other real person job I had was um, a model recruiter for Abercrombie. <laughs> Nixed the model recruiter now because you know, Abercrombie has been through a whole slew of just being canceled. So <laughs> wait, that was a job. That's amazing. Yeah, so what would you do? You would just go up to cute looking people and say, Hey, I think you should model for Abercrombie. Yeah. But they had to be on brand quote unquote. And so what does so that mean? What was on the, brand. what was the, yeah. What was the Abercrombie on brand? Cause the Aber- yeah. one of my friends was actually chased down by an Abercrombie scout. So tell me what is the Abercrombie brand? At the time they were having some issues with the race thing. So it, you know, it wasn't a rate, it wasn't just white people, quote unquote. Um, they had to be natural beauties. They had to, you know, walk in. It was very much um, the type of brand where if you, you know, wore just a little bit of mascara and not very much makeup, they always, you know, the model recruiters would always say, when you come in for the interview, make sure that you wear clothes that are very Abercrombie-esque, but no makeup. You know, it was such a huge thing. They had to just be naturally beautiful. And really these model recruiters, they weren't hired to be actual models. They were just hired to sell retail. I mean, it was like a terrible job and didn't pay well. But a friend of mine, I think when I was in between gigs, a friend of mine had reached out and I remember thinking, oh man, I need insurance. And my insurance is up because I didn't earn enough weeks working this year for um, equity. 
and so he reached out and he said, listen, this is a, you know, it's a really easy gig. It's not a lot of money. It's $11 an hour and you punch in once a week. You know, you put, you know, you, you work the front desk of a model recruiters once a week and you punch in and out and that's it. You have to just or punch in or punch out once a day at the corporate office on Madison Avenue. And, and then you're free to do whatever you want. You have to bring in two people per week. So I would just, you know, go grocery shopping. I'd see someone and say, Hey, have you ever thought about, (laughs) you know, working for Abercrombie, you know, here's the information going for the interview. And then if you get two people hired per week, then you were good. Oh my gosh. And so you got incredible insurance. Wait, so that's when you were in New York trying to hustle to be an actress. Is this correct? Well, I actually know this was in between this must have been before before Jasmine, after in the Heights, and uh, there was a there was a waiting period there before before Aladdin came to Broadway, and that was from 2011 to 2013, and I was doing I was getting my feet wet with television, so I I did my first sort of four uh, guest star co star appearances on TV shows like Law and Order, you know CSI New York things like that. So I had done TV, so it was. I was making money, but I wasn't earning weeks towards uh, equity for uh, for insurance for benefits. Yeah, yeah, for oh, my benefits. So yeah, so because there's a big job. union, there's a big union on Broadway. So when mm. you join, you join uh, the Actors Guild. Is that what it is? Yeah, Actors Equity. Actors Equity, and so you have to get a certain number of hours so that you can earn into your benefits and all of this. Interesting. Right. And so when you came out of college, then what was your, so you booked in the Heights? Is that the first show you booked or? Actually, Mamma Mia was my first okay. show. So, so I had, when I was in college, my teachers did not approve of this and neither did the director of my department, but I was auditioning. I got an agent after my freshman year and I thought, you know, I'm in Chicago. I, I got to start learning how to audition and do all this stuff. You know, I was in a conservatory, a theater conservatory. So I was, you know, working so many, I mean, going to so many classes and then, you know, doing after hours and theater and then you have to do stage management, you have to do all this stuff. And so I got an agent and I got several agents actually in the city and they worked around my school schedule. So when I had a break, maybe for an hour in between classes, they would send me out for an audition. It was commercials, industrials, you know, shorts, little things like that. I would audition for student films and, and anything that I could, you know, build a reel on. And so, uh, so by the time I graduated, I had an agent and I had auditioned actually for Mamma Mia when I was in my sophomore year you know, Mamma Mia was really great. They came to many cities to audition people and they were very sort of equal opportunity. And I auditioned when I was a sophomore and uh, I didn't book it. And then my senior year after I graduated, I, I went in for an audition. I had done a couple of theater gigs in the city in Chicago and I auditioned for Mamma Mia and I booked it. And so I thought it was for the national tour or something like that. Turns out it's for Broadway. And they said, oh you know, my. you're going to be on Broadway to, in two weeks, pack your bags, you know, and I had never been to New York City and I'd never seen a Broadway show. And here I am, oh my you know, gosh. <laughs> two bucks, three bags, one me, you know, just like NYC, you know, it was so crazy. I just thought my life has changed in an instant. And so, yeah, it was the one of the easiest auditions of my life. And oh my gosh. And so for our listeners who are unfamiliar with Broadway, I know a little bit through you and a few other friends, but for those who are unfamiliar, you show up 
And what happens? You rehearse. I mean, first you have to find a place to live beyond all the extra stuff that you have to do, but you show up, you rehearse, and then they basically, you're just on stage basically. And, you know, like walk us through that process of how do you prepare and how do you learn your lines? You had two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty crazy. I I mean, they, it depends on so if you're replacing someone or if you're joining an original company. And a lot of times when you're uh, sort of fresh on the scene, you're joining a company that's been running and they're trying to replace people. And so I was replacing a girl and I happened to be replacing at the same time that someone else was leaving. So my friend Frankie Grande and I, that's how we became best friends. We joined the company of Mamma Mia together. And so what they normally do is they have you learn a lot of the vocals um, with the musical director and, you know, they plunk out all your parts and you have to memorize all of those. And then you go into a rehearsal with the dance captain and the dance captain will just rehearse you and say, okay, now just imagine all of these people here and they have to be every other person that you're partnering with or, and then they teach you the choreography and they, and they teach you your spacing basically in a nutshell in the Cliff Stokes versions. And then you get one chance that they call the put in to do those spacing, the spacing and the choreography and everything in real time with the cast and hope that you don't kill anyone. And then you're on usually either that night or the next day or a couple days later, if the next day happens to be the day off. And so it's pretty insane. It's pretty fast. And if you make mistakes and there's an audience, it's, you get the next show and you know, you do hundreds of shows. And so, so it ends up being fine, but oh my goodness, it's like a, you know, deer in headlights. You're just and everyone else is so used to doing the show every day you know I remember my Broadway debut I'm I'm so nervous I'm thinking about the choreography and my my vocal line and all this stuff and they're just chatting with you but they're backstage and they're just chatting me chatting 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 having making conversations so anyway so how was your day and I'm just like don't talk to me I don't even listening for my cue because they're so used to they know exactly when their cue is they know exactly what they're doing it's like old hat to them and so I remember just freaking out, like, please stop talking to me. Please stop talking to me. I don't even know when I'm supposed to go oh on. Oh my gosh. Well, and we're going to get to Aladdin in a little bit, uh, but I remember having a conversation with Rodney Ingram, who was the understudy of Aladdin at the time and asking him, so tell me like, how does this work? Like, certainly you've, re- you've rehearsed with Courtney and the entire thing. He said, no, I said, so you're telling me the first time you were on stage as Aladdin, you kissed this gorgeous woman who you'd never <laughs> met ever before in your life in front of 1500 people. And he was like, yeah, it's pretty crazy. I'm like, that's crazy. <laughs> She got on the magic carpet with you. She trusted you. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) these were all my questions. I was like, that's crazy. Oh, it's, it's totally insane. And, and, you know, when I, this is, we'll talk about Aladdin, but when I uh, replaced in the West End, um, I was meeting sort of the Aladdin kind of for the first time I had met him sort of briefly when he came to see the show in New York, but you know, and they were rehearsing the scene and I'm just like, Hey, nice to meet you rehearsing the scene. And he just like, kisses me. Yeah. Okay. He's in rehearsals. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, it's just such, a, <laughs> such a weird profession. It's just insane. That is really weird. All right. So then from Mama Mia, you and Frankie Grande, you're such good friends. I always loved, I actually spent his, was it his 30th birthday? Remember when we were in LA oh and I went to go see you, you were in the Aladdin cast. You were doing LA for like a month. 
I went to see you and it happened to be Frankie's birthday. And we ended up across the street celebrating. I think it was his 30th birthday. It was the most random thing. I was like, here I am. I don't know any of these people and I'm celebrating his birthday. I know that was (laughs) so fun. What was that place called? The vine or vine or wooden vine, wooden vine. Great right. spot. It was like the go-to Oh spot. yeah, Hollywood and Vine. It's right there at Hollywood and Vine. Okay. That All right. So Mamma Mia, then you go where and with whom? Yeah, I go to In the Heights. And, you know, I'd been hearing about this show In the Heights. It's so cool. It's so cool. Courtney, you'd be perfect for it. You got to be perfect for it. And, um, you know, I auditioned originally as a dancer and I didn't think that they were going to cast me as a lead. I don't know why I I just never thought um, I, I would have, to, I thought I would really have to pay my dues before I was going to play a principal on Broadway. But I auditioned for the show many, many times. And they said, you have to be proficient in hip hop, which I had been, I had, you know, taken a lot of hip hop since I was a kid. And I just loved it so much. It was my favorite. And, um, and then they said, and Latin dancing, which I was very unfamiliar with. And so one day after a two show day on a Saturday night, I had an audition, I think on, on Monday for In Heights. And after my Saturday show, I went down to, I don't remember the village or wherever they had Latin dancing. And I just threw myself to the wolves and I just waited for a guy to ask me to dance. Wait, what? <laughs> Was this indoor, outdoor when you went to a dance club? Yeah, like a Latin, a straight up Latin dance club. And I thought, what better way to learn than to just, you know, have oh. some guy partner me and teach me. <laughs> I mean, what was you have I such grit. Like, you are so amazing. Like who oh does God. that? You are so gritty and you're just like, I'm going to go for it. People. I just, I mean, I just didn't know how else to do, do it. I, I, I said, I didn't have enough time to learn to take Latin dancing classes. And they, I, I know when they teach you, they teach you at a very sort of slow pace. And I, I pick up stuff very quickly because I've been dancing my whole life. And so I thought, you know what, let's just go down there. And I don't know what I was thinking by myself. I'm like in my early twenties and I'm just going to a Latin dance club. And these guys would just pull me and twirl me around. And I said, so, you know, how is this song maybe different from the last song or something like that? Because there's different forms of Latin dancing. And, and, and then he would say, just follow my lead. Try not to, you know, try not to anticipate what I'm doing. You have to follow me. And so they would, and you know what, in one night I learned so much. I like couldn't samba, believe it. Salsa, yeah. Oh my gosh. And they were so open to me asking questions and saying, yeah, like teach me how to do this. And they would teach me and I would pick it up. And, and that's how, and granted that, that audition, I didn't book it. You know, I, I think I, I think I got cut and then I, I kept going back and I kept going back and um, it and did you continue so- going back to that dance place to like dance with these guys on Saturday nights? No, because what I had a better, I even had something better. I knew the girl that was dating the dance captain. And this was because I was a part of, um, a not-for-profit organization called Broadway in South Africa, where we took Broadway performers to South Africa and we did camps and we taught kids. I was one of the acting teachers with actually Uzo Aduba, who is now an Emmy award-winning actress from uh, Orange is the New Black. She and I went to South Africa together and with along with Frankie Grande and Adam Cantor and a bunch of, you know, Sean Bradford, a bunch of, you know, Broadway stars. And there was a girl named Tracy and she said, you know, you're, you're auditioning for In the Heights. My girlfriend is a dance captain. She'll teach you the combination. So she taught me the combination. I remember I was so nervous and she, I think, ended up, you know, get, putting a good word in for me. And I made, I started making the cuts 
but then but would, wouldn't get cast. And I was just like, oh man. So finally the national tour of In the Heights is going out. I go in for the audition. I make it to the final, you know, whatever it is for the dancers. I don't final eight girls or whatever it was. And all these girls kept getting calls and I wasn't getting a call. And I'm just like, geez, I must've been the only person that didn't book this show because everyone in that room basically got an offer. And so I went in for an audition with the same casting director for the national tour of Rent. Mm -hmm. And as a Mimi Maureen cover sort of offstage to do Alexi Darling and all this stuff. And we go through the whole shebang and dancing and singing and everything. The casting director comes out and she says, you know, I know that you had originally said you don't want to do an offstage cover to go on a tour to leave your Broadway show. Um, They want to offer this to you, but I recommend, you know, you're their favorite for In the Heights. So they're going to be calling you in about a month till I'll come in for a final callback. I'm like, what? What? (laughs) This is new news to me. I had no idea. And I must have auditioned for In the Heights maybe four times and got to the end and dancing and saying and dance and saying and and everything. And so I went in and Lin-Manuel Miranda was in the room and everyone was there. And it was to play Carla and understudy Nina and Vanessa. And it was for a temporary leave of absence for Janet to call the original Carla for when she went to play Alice in the show called Wonderland. And so Hmm. that was the most long-winded answer ever, but that was my next gig. And it turned into a permanent gig because she ended up um, leaving to do the show on Broadway. And, and yeah. A lot of lessons there. A lot of lessons there, right? Just perseverance, tenacity, not giving up on, on your dream, going and learning, going to (laughs) dance with Latin people, finding the right person to give you, teach you. I mean, so much good stuff there. Good for you. Thank All you. Right. So then you're in that show with, you know, sort of at the time an up and coming Lynn Manuel. Mm-hmm. And then let's talk about, you know, my favorite, one of my all time favorite Disney movies, you know, Aladdin. I mean, the first brunette, I mean, not really the first, but the first ethnic princess, I would say. Is that right? Yeah. yeah she was before absolutely. Milan. Before Milan. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Before Pocahontas, for sure. She was the first ethnic. And yeah, she wasn't the first brunette because. You know, Snow White was Snow a brunette, White. but but really most of them, well, Belle was a brunette, but a lot of them were blonde. Yeah, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty. Yeah, they, you know, they were the, you know, the quintessential, like kind of all American looking girls. Yeah, and then they, weren't, they weren't feisty. Yeah, they weren't feisty like Jasmine and you played a feisty Jasmine. So let's talk about that. Yes. Disney announces, or you hear from your agent that they're casting. Yeah, I hear from my agent that they're doing, they, hey, they want to call you in for a small intimate reading of Aladdin, the musical. Like, what? Okay, that's weird. I didn't see that nobody's talking about it. I freak out because, you know, this has always been a dream that they should make Aladdin into a musical, like the best musical ever. And so I come to find out it's really only five girls that they called in. And it was the same casting director that cast me in Mamma Mia. So they mm. just pulled from their roster of people because usually with Disney, they have such a large family of people from other companies, from Lion King, from any shows that they've done in the past, Beauty and the Beast. And 
uh, Tarzan, they, they pull from their roster people that they know that could possibly play these roles. And really it's just for a presentation for Disney to see what, you know, what the show would look like on its feet kind of ish. So it was a reading, it was a 29 hour reading and they wanted to license a full production of the show. So it wasn't even in the works to go to, to Broadway at all. It was really just that people had been requesting, you know, they liked Aladdin Jr., but they need a full length production of the show. So they hired Chad Beglin, he wrote the book and we did a 29 hour reading. I booked it, you know, five girls auditioned, I booked it and we did the reading. It went so well that they thought, I think this could be something. Let's take it out of town. They pushed out a show from um, a region, the, the regional production of, I think, Oklahoma or something. They were like, oh, let's shove that out of there um, at Seattle. In Seattle, it was called the Fifth Avenue Theater. And the Aladdin came in and it was in, it was in uh, 2011. So I had, we had closed in the Heights in 2010 or 2011, 2010. And then that was on my, um, I had, I did the reading when I was doing in the Heights and then, and then I had to re-audition for the Fifth Avenue at Seattle and I booked it. And so that was my next job. And I, so I had a little time after that. So I went to South Africa and I did the thing in South Africa and I came back and I did the production in Seattle. And then, and then the rest is history. I never had to re-audition after um, Seattle, but we did another out of town trial in Toronto in 2013 before they brought to Broadway in 2014, where we eventually opened in March of 2014. But yeah, I just kept thinking this is the longest audition of my life. You know, they, they, I still have the job. Yeah. They could have, you know, they could have. And so during that time, else. during that time in Seattle and Toronto, they're working out the kinks, they're changing dance routines. They're seeing what makes people laugh, what doesn't right? And it's sort of oh, the yeah. massaging before they go to Broadway. Cause they don't want to, risk putting up a big production in Broadway until they've worked it all out. Is that right? Exactly. That's why they call them out of towns back in the day before, you know, all of the internet and the, you know, people being able to fly places so easily, they would take it out of town so that nobody could see it. So they could work out the kinks and they could, you know, test it out on an audience and see how it did and not get reviewed. <laughs> but, you know, now they do that and they take things out of town and of course they get reviewed. I think one of the successes of Aladdin is that our team and our producers with Disney, Tom Schumacher and Ann Court, weren't precious about things. They, they knew what needed to be changed and they changed it. And so we had many, many drastic changes from the out of towns, especially, um, you know, we got terrible reviews out of town. They're like, you know, there's these three characters, these three friends, and we don't even know who they are. And yeah, where's the monkey? Where's the monkey? Where's the tiger? You know? And so we made all of these changes. And, and so when it eventually came to Broadway, the word of mouth was, no, 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 this show is amazing. We thought it was going to be terrible, but it's incredible. It's hilarious. It's fun. It's funny. It's, it's action-packed. Like, we love this show. It's, you know, Disney's next best show. So we were thrilled about that, but we were obviously not thrilled about the terrible reviews we got out of town. Right. But that's an opportunity to grow and to refine. And it sounds like that's what the team did, which is great. Yeah. Thank goodness. And so you were the OG Princess Jasmine and you were in that role for a long time. How long? A long time. I did it for four years on Broadway and then I retired. Um, I retired <laughs> yeah, and then they brought you me out not. of retirement. They were, they were like, no, we need you in London, West End. But yeah, I did it for four years on Broadway. And I always told myself if I ever, um, if I ever take this part for granted, it's, it's the moment I should leave. And 
I never really felt that way until about four years in when a lot of the, you know, original cast members started leaving. And I just thought, you know, I, I should move on to kind of the next chapter in my career. And, you know, I, I had always wanted to try out LA and, you know, Aladdin happened to be in LA at the time with the national tour. And so I was able to swap with the Jasmine on the tour and she got her Broadway debut. So it was really the best of all worlds. And then that's where I sort of ended my chapter along with Adam Jacobs, who was on tour, my original Aladdin, and also Michael James Scott, who was playing the genie at the time, who was the original standby. So it was kind of a very full circle moment and it was incredible. And I lived in LA for a couple of years and I loved LA. And then they called me out of retirement, maybe a year and a half later, like we need you in the West End. And so I thought, well, let me come and, you know, quote, unquote, save the day, I guess. No, no, it was like, <laughs> twist my arm. Yeah. No, it was incredible until I got, that was. And what a dream. I mean, what a dream to be able to perform on the West End too. I know. Wow. Yeah. I just, I just pinch myself every day. I'm like, how did I get to do that? Yeah. And for our listeners who haven't had a chance to see Aladdin, it is, I mean, it's really, really magical, especially if you ever grew up watching the film or you watch it with your kids. It's just really magical. The whole set. There's an actual flying carpet. You can't see any ropes. You can't see any me- mechanics as to even how that thing is flying. Mm-mm. It's just really special. And there's, you know, like a, is it a three minute tap dance scene? I mean, the whole thing is over the top. Oh, I think it's an eight minute long. It's eight minutes, it's eight minutes of jam packed fun for a friend yeah. like me. I mean, it's it, it, with fireworks and everything. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. So that's a really fun show. And it's, I, I think it's boyfriendly. I mean, I took my boys in New York cause I was trying to figure out, do we see Spider-Man? But then they had the accident right around then. So we couldn't see it. And we decided to go see Aladdin. And I thought, well, this is, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to, you know, sit through this with the boys. Cause they may turn to me like they did when we saw frozen the movie, my little guy turned to me. He said, mommy, is this a princess movie? Yeah. <laughs> and so they enjoyed Aladdin. It was very boy. There was a lot of, you know, gut, uh, sword fighting and all sorts of action and, and they really enjoyed it. So, and that's the when I got to meet show. you. I, I know. know that's when I got to meet you. Okay. So then from there, then you went to the West end, you've been in LA, it's been COVID but when you were Princess Jasmine, and I would argue you still are Princess Jasmine, but you started a company. And this is why I think you're really unique in that you had a huge audience on social and you had all these little girls following you who loved you and they would go to the stage door and they would wait in the freezing cold weather in New York City to meet you know, Princess Jasmine and get a picture and an autograph. And you capitalized on that and you said, you know what, I'm really into jewelry. I'm really into fashion. I'm really into all these things. And you started a company called Gagged Chokers. Yeah. So can we talk about that a little bit? Because in between scenes, I mean, on your Instagram, you would have stories of you where you would have a full room of all these boxes and all these ribbons, and you would actually hand make chokers and then package them and sell them. You had a little e-commerce biz going and you still do. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it's died down a lot because the, you know, the demand for chokers isn't, isn't insane now. And also I'm like kind of transitioning to a different part of my life, but gag is not dead forever. And it's going to transition into something that it's going to come out of necessity, of course, but, but that's what, that's what happened. It came out of necessity and people sort of reaching out on social media, just saying, where did you get that? Or people would stop me in the street and say, where did you get that choker? And I, I remember I had just Marie Kondo'd everything in my house 
including all of my old chokers from high school. And, um, you know, the choker trend came back and I thought, you know what, I'm going to get back into this choker trend, but I'm going to dedicate a day to go out and get some cute chokers. And I couldn't find any, I thought these are so basic and boring and they're expensive. And I don't understand, uh, you know what, this can't be that hard. I was going to trim shop and put some clamps on there and put a chain on can't be that difficult. So I started just making them myself and people on my social started reaching out and say, can you, can we buy them? Can we buy them? And so my dresser at the time and a couple of my friends who there was another dresser, she, they would, they would model them for me. And I would say, you know, can you just test these out and see like, do you like these? Like you, how does, how does it fit? Is it durable? Does it work? And you know, they would wear them and the girls ensemble was like, where did you get that? That's so cute. You know, and people would ask them, where did they get it? You know? And so they really helped me. So it was, a turned out to be four, four girls creating these, uh, collections and really they based it off of Kylie Jenner and her lip kit, (laughs) her lip kits, because Kylie Jenner had just come out with all these lip kits and they um, all had names and they were a part of a collection. Once they sold out, they were gone forever. So they were all basically limited edition. And we thought that's what we're going to do. And we're going to come out with chokers on, you know, different holidays and use different occasions to sort of um, market them. And then once they're gone, they're gone forever. And what we didn't realize is that it created this sort of community of young girls of lifting each other and talking about what chokers they had. And um, we did a scavenger hunt one year for the, you know, the flea market, the Broadway flea market. And a lot of the girls met up in person and, and sort of shared in which chokers they had. And, and it was, became this sort of female empowerment thing, a very, a, a girl gang of females that just lifted each other up instead of kind of tearing each other down like they do on social mm-hmm. media these days. Mm-hmm. And that kind of opened my eyes to this, this whole, um, you know, just the issue of cyberbullying and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I don't necessarily outwardly talk about it as much as I probably should, but it, it's been, you know, it was an issue with me and Aladdin and people sort of bullying me and you know, that, that, you know, I can take because I'm an adult, but I just started thinking, you know, if, if this were me and I was, you know, these girls age that are buying the chokers, this would have really affected me. And so it was really wonderful to create this kind of girl gang community that, that they could look to each other to lift each other up. It was so beautiful. Well, and you are a very, very positive person. I, when I first met you, I thought there's, it's not real. She can't be this kind and this sweet all the time, but in fact you are, I mean, I would say there's like one other person I know who's like that. And I always thought that there's no way that that's a, that's a show. He's not that nice. And he, in fact, is really that nice, but you and I did a trip. We did, uh, we went to the alt summit in Palm Springs and we stayed together for like five days. And I thought this person is just a good human. And she is in fact, this kind and this sweet. And I can understand, oh, stop rolling your eyes or our listeners can't (laughs) see you rolling your eyes, but I would understand why directors and producers would want to have you in their cast because you are really positive and you are really uplifting and you're a great role model to, you know, the younger generation. And so And also I, you know, sort of secretly hate you because you wake up in the morning and you're absolutely flawless. Like your skin is radiant. Yes. And then you sit there and you put makeup on. I'm like, whatever. Why would you even spend money on makeup? 
<laughs> she said, whatever. If oh my gosh. If I looked like that, I would seriously walk around naked all day. Like seriously, you're, you're flawless. ridiculous. You're no. flawless. And you no. are that person. Like you, <laughs> I can't even like, let's not even go down that road. Okay. Because- let's not go down that <laughs> Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. Thanks. So now you have some, oh, well, wait, then you had a show that I also saw in New York. It was yes. a little show. Let's talk about that one. Yeah. Cambodian rock band. It was, it was an opportunity that came up when I um, was living in LA. I had come back from uh, the West end and I get this appointment. It's, it says Cambodian rock band. And I thought, this is, this is interesting. I don't know. Uh, it's off Broadway. I'm not sure. Uh, it's a play. You know, they never cast me in plays because I'm a musical theater person. I read the script. I fell in love. It was so incredible. And so I sent in a self tape and they, and it was the first audition that I've ever booked basically just virtual. And I sent in several self tapes and then I had, um, sort of like a zoom, I guess a zoom or zoom wasn't even that big at the time. So I guess it was a Skype call or FaceTime or something. And I had the audition in real time, but on FaceTime and the whole creative team was there. And it was so funny because I think that they had callbacks where people in real life came in and then, you know, they propped me up on a computer and that was my callback. The play is written by Lauren Yee, who is incredible. And so I happened to be going to New York for a wedding. And then I was going to New York a couple weeks later and um, they also asked me back to Aladdin for two weeks. So I was like, sure, okay, great. And Lauren Yee had asked to meet me in person. And so she just met me in person and she had a conversation with me and they said, you, you, know, you don't have to prepare anything. She just wants to talk to you. And I, I booked it and it was, it was one of the most incredible experiences of my life because I think for so long I'd been kind of hiding my ethnicity and not revealing you know, my, my true um, background, but really, you know, this was about a girl, a Cambodian girl, and I've never been able to play a Southeast Asian. My mom is, you know, was born and raised in Thailand, but she's ethnically Vietnamese, but I identify a lot with the Thai culture, but really, I mean, it's not the same. It's not like Cambodia is the same as Thailand, you know, or Vietnam, but it's a Southeast Asian girl. And so there's similarities there and a connection that I had with my fellow Asian castmates and um, it was a play. So that was a bucket list thing. And I got to play a rock star, but I also got to, mm-hmm. you know, really tap into my, uh, you know, my, my play acting skills. And so um, I, I was, was so grateful that the community got to see me in that light and, and something in a very, very different kind of 180 of, of Aladdin. And so, so yeah, and that took us to COVID. Yeah. I mean, that was the beginning of March. So I remember I went to go see Rodney. He was on as Aladdin and then I went Mm -hmm. to go see you. And then literally like a week later, everything shut down. Yeah. Yeah. But since then you have had a lot of big, exciting news to announce. I mean, I know you've already announced it, but you had done a show at 54 below called confessions of a princess. Is that right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Conf- what was it? Confessions of a Broadway princess. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then you connected with a couple of other people. I want to hear about Broadway princess party. Yeah. Broadway princess party was, you know, the brainchild of Benjamin Rahula, who was my musical director for a uh, 54 below so- solo show and Laura Osnes. And they had reached out to me to, you know, represent Jasmine in this, you know, one night only show of 
called the Broadway Princess Party. And also another sort of female empowerment, you know, moment where you're getting all of these powerhouses of Broadway stars in one room and one show. And um, we're all lifting each other up. And normally we'd be competing against each other, but really this evening we're not. We all get to share the same stage and be kind of fun and campy and, you know, kind of play these characters, but in kind of cosplay costumes and things like that. And it was a one night only show, but every time we would bring that show back to 54 Below, it quickly became the fastest selling show. And it would sell out within minutes. They'd put it on sale and boom, sold out. So, uh, you know, we got an offer to come to Costa Mesa for uh, three shows at the, uh, oh, what at the is OSHA. It? At yeah. OSHA, the Orange um, County. Um, isn't that, isn't that where you performed? No, but we did go to OSHA. We did go to um, Brea and OSHA and not Sagerstrom. No. Yeah. Sagerstrom. Oh, That's you... what it's called. <laughs> okay. How did you know that? Is that, is that OSHA? No, 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 no. Sagerstrom is where all the, all the tours come through. I yeah. Mean, so yeah, Sagerstrom. Big... So it's the, it's the black box sort of, I mean, it's not really a black box. I don't know how that theater is set up. Um, but it's, it's, it's stunning. And, you know, you sit at a table and it's, it's perfect kind of cabaret style. And so we were offered that show and we asked Susan Egan, cause she was local at the time. And she said, you know, I got to produce the show. It's yeah. going to be huge. And started sort of kind of taking it on tour. We had a holiday tour and, and um, we were playing little theaters, you know, 500 seat theaters. And, and then we linked up with Disney and they said, we want you to be a part of our Disney concert series. And uh, we will call it will be called Disney princess, the concert. And we want to partner with you all. And we were all a part of the company. We were producers on the show. So now, now right, I guess you be formed a producer, you, right? Because you formed a company an LLC around this. And after you did those first couple of orange County shows, you realized, Ooh, the group realized there's something here. So you created a company around it. And then Disney came knocking and I was like, wait, what? That's crazy. I know. And in fact, what really happened was Susan Egan, because she was the um, original Belle on Broadway, but also voiced the character of Megara in Disney's animated film, Hercules. So she has a, she has a great uh, relationship with Disney music. So she reached out to Disney music and said, uh, we would like to, um, pay for the licensing of some of your songs or you know we always thought they're gonna they're gonna cancel us because they never singing their songs on the road they never said anything and they said we have a better idea do you want to partner with us because we've been wanting a princess show and 2019 2020 and you know 2021 it's it's the year of the princess yeah so they're doing this ultimate disney princess campaign and what better than to have a concert series about princesses and you have the show already yeah. I mean, and it's so. incredible. The timing, the timing was really, really good. And from my perspective, so I worked at Disney when Michael Eisner was CEO and there was huge debate at the time of packaging the princesses together. And at the time, the philosophy was we would never like Cinderella and Belle would never be in the same room together. Why would we ever have them packaged together? But the, the little girls at the Disney stores were buying all of the costumes and they were demanding almost. And so that's really when that started to start happening. That was, gosh, a long time ago. That was 94. Oh my gosh, 94. Wow. And so all these years later, you still have these Disney princesses. And I remember when you started like doing these little tours, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are you licensing the music? I remember asking you like, are you licensing the music or they're just, 
But then I thought, you know what? You're the original princesses who played on these Broadway performances. So they know you're squeaky clean. It's not like you're going to be going off brand or in such a way that would be scary to them. So that is really interesting. I mean, to have then Disney come and say, no, we actually want to partner with you instead of licensing. That's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. definitely, it was amazing. <laughs> Crazy amazing. And so you were just in Saudi Arabia, you know, launching the world tour of Disney princesses. You know, so crazy. We, you know, we, after we partnered with Disney, there was a lot of, you know, development and um, Susan Egan has been sort of heading us on all of that. And she's an incredible business person, but we were going to launch the fall tour of the U S national sort of tour of Disney princess, the concert, and that was going to be our world premiere. And due to COVID, they had to cancel that and reschedule it for 2022, which was a bummer for me. But then we got this offer to do uh, the world premiere in the Middle East. And it all happened so fast. And all of a sudden we're all in a plane to, you know, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Riyadh. And we are putting up the production that we have been dreaming about since day one with full on animations, a whole crew in ear. And we had those, you know, the in ears, we had to learn how to do the in ears. That was so crazy. I'm like, I feel like a rock star. We have four powerhouse (laughs) ladies from Broadway an awesome production of a show that, you know, starred four ladies and, and Benjamin Rahala in a country where, you know, it was illegal for women to perform four years ago and for unmarried men and women to be sitting next to each other. So here we are in Saudi and we're performing and, you know, there's no, there's, you know, we're wearing gowns with shoulders out and everything. So it was a really, really once in a lifetime experience. And I, I, I just, I can't, I can't even believe. I can't and believe how was the reception it. from the fans? Oh, they loved it. Oh, they absolutely loved it. Lots of, lots of kids. Almost every kid was dressed up. Um, a lot of girls, um, some, some little boys as well. Lots of families, very family oriented. And um, it was received so well. They just loved it. And they, they love Disney there. They absolutely love it. And it was a spectacular show. And at the end, you know, we do let it go. And then, you know, the, the snow is falling down and that's the encore and everyone's just thrilled and happy. And they just felt so grateful that we were there and we felt the same. Oh my gosh. Well, and so then that's kicking off, but also beyond that, which is I mean, a dream come true for you in and of itself. You have another dream come true, another major bucket list dream come true. So what is that? Because you need to announce it to the world. Uh, I was offered Satine in the North American tour launch of Moulin Rouge, the musical, the Tony award winning (laughs) Moulin Rouge, the musical, which they just swept at the Tonys this year, which is a incredible and insane and I'm just like I just pinching myself again and I originally had auditioned for that in 2019 and I'd been kind of holding on to that for a while and I, I went in for final callbacks and it was going to be down to a chemistry read and everything was halted due to COVID and so I thought oh man another waiting game is this going to happen is it ever going to happen and then it happened and um, I'm just so thrilled oh I'm my so gosh thrilled. and so that's when does that kick off that kicks off. We go to, um, we'll be in rehearsals in January in New York. And then it opens in Chicago, which is where I happen Amazing. to be living at the moment. And so, you know, we're there for three months. It's going to be incredible. Um, 
my whole family will be there. It's great. My parents are, my parents even said, I think we're even going to get a hotel for opening night. Wow. You know, so they're going to, they're they're doing it big. They're like, we're not going to drive back home to Elgin. We're just going to stay in a hotel. It's going to (laughs) be, it's going to be a great night, you know? So I'm I'm just super pumped. It's such a dream come true. Oh my gosh. Well, I remember seeing the movie and thinking, and then just listening to that soundtrack over and over and over again. I mean, it's incredible. Wow. All right. So now we're caught up on your career. Let's go to what's the one thing you have to do every single day when you, just to get your day started. I have to listen to music. I have to listen to and it's, it's terrible. I got to listen to that top pop. I'm like, Alexa, play top pop radio. You know, Again, I know it's terrible. It's not even like really good music. It's just, it gets the energy going and I inevitably end up, you know, kind of dancing around. And I, I love to sort of wake up, have my coffee, listen to my music and go through the house and make sure that it's spick and span. I clean it so that everything, I cleanse the palate. I make sure that, okay, Once this is done, it clears my mind. The house is clean. Great. I can start my day. Boom. But I need my music first (laughs) to get me motivated. And even though you're doing shows fairly late, I mean, a Broadway lifestyle, you're getting home 11, 1130. You're totally pumped because you just came off this product, right? This show with thousands of people in the audience. You're probably not getting to bed until I would say one, but you're a morning person. I am. I actually have now become more of a morning person because now because of COVID, you know, I'm not going to bed super late. My boyfriend wakes up way early because he loves watching sunrise. And I just love the feeling of, I look at the time and it's like, oh, wait a second. It's only 11 a.m. Right. This is yep. great. <laughs> the rest of the day, this is amazing. And I, I just love feeling like the day is long. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I become more of a morning person. Now. Yeah. Well, you, you're very productive. You get a lot done. Um, <laughs> what would you say has been the distinctive inflection point in your career? Well, I think the the moment that I knew that I wanted to be, and you mean for career or like sort of my dream, whichever one you want to answer. Well, I think the, the biggest turning point in my life was when I played Annie and Annie when I was probably like 12 or 11. And that was the moment I knew for the rest of my life, I wanted to be an actor. And I don't think I ever, I don't think I even thought about not succeeding or not making money or anything like that. I just was, it was a one track mind. I thought, okay, I love this. So obviously this is going to be my job. And I never really thought otherwise. So where, whereas my siblings, you know, did something totally different, but maybe didn't know what they wanted to major in. You know, I was just like steadfast. It's like 12 years old. That's it. I'm going to be an actor. It's gonna be great. And my, my mom is like, Oh no, my daughter's <laughs> going to be an actress, you know? Right. She didn't let, she didn't let me know that until I don't know, like a year ago. She's like, Oh yeah. I had all these doubts. I'm like, what? Oh, oh my gosh. All right. So that was the time where you made the decision. This is what I'm going to do, which is fantastic. You've been in a ton of shows. Uh, what's the craziest thing you've ever experienced either in a meeting? Cause now you've had several meetings. I know you just came off of a crazy call <laughs> or on stage. Like I know Kaylee Ann has some really, really great stories of how she had to get dragged off stage because her dress got stuck on the, Oh yeah. You haven't heard these stories. Oh, so the no. first time she performed with Rodney, 
her, she fell and her dress got stuck and he ended up dragging her off stage and tore her entire shredded her dress. <laughs> oh, oh, that's terrible. Yes. But also so, hilarious. Super funny the way she tells it, but what's the craziest thing you've ever experienced? And what was the lesson there? Oh, it's so hard because I've so, there were so many mishaps that happened in Aladdin, but I think the worst of all was having to, when we were in the West end, having to perform whole new world without a carpet. There were times when I was on Broadway, the carpet broke and just maybe, maybe just kept spinning. And then they had to bring the curtain down, but this was the worst. It was like, I knew going into it that we had to do the concert version of a whole new world. And that was just the worst because, but yeah, I had to um, pretend like, you know, I wasn't just letting the entire audience down with the fact that the carpet wasn't going to fly. And we just sat there on the bench and pretended to be in love. I mean, it was really, really eggy on the face, but the lesson learned is really people forgive you. They forgive you and, and they still love the show and they're still going to give you a standing ovation at the end. They're still going to clap at the end of the song, even though they're confused. It's a little confused, (laughs) you know, clap, but they, they, they forgive you. And, and um, nobody asked for their money back and we all moved on with our lives and nobody died. So thank goodness. (laughs) That's awesome. That's a good one. I can't believe, oh my gosh. So you actually were on the carpet and it was just spinning in circles. Oh yeah, that happened on Broadway <laughs> at the end. And we, you know, it's supposed to kind of come down and button and kiss and thing. We're just like, for oh. you and me. <laughs> what do we do? Somebody please bring the carpet curtain in. Oh gosh, this is awful. Oh my gosh. But you know, at that point, it's not your fault. You know, it's like, okay, well this happened and everyone saw that it happened and that wasn't supposed to happen, but it's like, oh, hey, you know. Yeah, live minute, show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. An intermission in London. They're like, so the carpet's not working. You're going to have to do the, uh, the concert version of a whole new world. Here's how it goes. I'm like, Oh no. Oh okay. man. Oh man. Has there been a time in your career? Maybe we talked about this a little bit already, but has there ever been a time in your career that you considered a flop or a failure that really taught you an important lesson? Yeah. And I won't say it was a failure necessarily. It was, I, this is so crazy because I've, I've never been a, in a show that was a flop or any, I've never made like some, you know, colossal mistakes, but I remember feeling a little maybe insecure about going into audition for Legally Blonde at one point. And I thought, you know, I don't know, all these girls look cookie cutter, like perfect. And I'm just not, I don't know, I'm not really that type, but I really love the show. And and I want to audition, but maybe I'll just wait until, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, and I was kind of confiding in a, a friend about it that was in Mama Mia. And she was like, never wait for an opportunity. Never wait for when you mm. think you're going to be ready. Just go, just do it. Just go. And I, I listened to her and I went and um, I sang a, a song uh, called uh, Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive in my audition. And after I was done with the song, the he was sort of like the associate director at the time. And he was like, yep, yep, you will, you will survive. Yeah, you will. (laughs) You know, and I was like, great, awesome. And, you know, I didn't end up booking it or um, whatever it was, but I remember feeling like, no, she's right. Like I shouldn't wait. I I should do it. I'm never going to make that mistake again. I'm just going to go for it. Yeah. And didn't you sing that song at the alt conference? That show? Isn't that the song you sang? The karaoke sing-along? 
I sure did. And that's a song that booked me my first Broadway show. It opened my, you know, Confessions of a Broadway Princess, my first solo show at 54 Below. I mean, it's a constant theme, this song. I just love it. Yeah. So the alt summit was, what was it? It was like 3000 women. They're all bloggers and influencers and content creators. And they came to, they come together and it's this fantastic conference. And Barbara Jones, who was my very first podcast guest, asked if I would produce a concert at the show. And I was like, okay, I've not really done that in a while, but okay. And you were fantastic. You sang three songs and one of them was I'll Survive. And it was a sing-along and the whole audience was going crazy. That was super fun. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't (laughs) love that song, right? It's just, it wins every time. Weddings, you name it. That's right. Has there been something that you've said, like really, really bold thing that you've said to a colleague or to a boss that you sort of even thought, oh, I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, there was a moment where a boss kind of said to me, they, they were giving me a note to be more decisive about something, you know, they're like, you gotta be more decisive. You gotta, instead of just, you know, being in the middle. And, and so this same person then came like later and was saying, you know, you gotta, you gotta do this and, and you should have done it this way. And you should have done it this way. And you should have done this, this way, you know, and kind of was like coming at me. And I stopped that person. And I said, listen, I'm telling you right now that what you're trying to do is you're trying to change my personality. I can't change my personality, but this is what I think I should have done in that moment. This is what I did. And I decided in that moment that that's what I should do. And also you told me to be more decisive and I'm being decisive right now. And that's what you told me to do. So I took a note and, and, and that the person was like, oh my gosh, wow. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't have come at you like that. And also you're right. I gave you a note to be more decisive and now you're being more decisive and I take it back, you know? So it was just kind of calling out the situation and, and, you know, taking the note, I guess, and telling that person, this is the note I'm taking and it's putting it into practice right now. (laughs) Wow. That's really strong. Love it. Thanks. So you've, you've worked under a lot of different leadership. You yourself are, I consider a leader in this industry. You've, you know, been really involved in, come on, the creation of the Disney princesses. I mean, you were there from the, from day one, you were there from day one of, you know, Aladdin. Tell me a leadership miss that you see regularly. Yeah, there is a theme. And I think for the most part, most of my leaders and all of my directors and the people that have even led as far as being, uh, you know, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, who led his company and a lot of, you know, Javier Munoz and people that have played leads, James Monroe Eigelhart. What I've really noticed is, is, is a success is sort of leading by example and inspiring other people because you are leading by example, not because you're telling someone how to lead. And I think that really shows because nobody wants to be told what to do. But if you inspire someone and they follow in your footsteps, then that is the best, you know, form of flattery, right? It's like, I want to follow you because I, I admire you. Mm. And, and I, I learned, I learned the best through that way. And so I think a lot of the, the misses, which there haven't been very many, but the things that I've noticed that are constant sort of leadership uh, failures are really when you let your ego and your selfishness get in the way and you're not thinking about the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is, of course, as an actor or as, you know, um, a company member of a show is 
is telling the story on stage or um, you know giving the audience what they want. It's not really about you. Sure, you should do your part, but it's not about you. It's about telling the story. So what's best for the company? What's best for the bigger picture? I think people get away from that a lot. They're like, you know, very self-centered and, um, but, but what about me? And what about this? What's well, this is not about you. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's really not. And um, that's why it's, I think it's so funny when, when you were saying that the boys really liked coming to see Aladdin. It's like, yeah, well, it's not about Jasmine. It's about the street rat. And it's about, they get, you know, he, she's the lead she's the reason why he does everything that he does but it's not about jasmine and so you have to kind of know where your where your place is and 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 feel that out and try and take the ego out of it i mean i think it's hard to do in our industry but but i see it done successfully all the time lin-manuel miranda is a perfect example right right well in your example of james monroe eigelhart i mean he played the original genie and he is this huge personality, but he also just seems so positive and kind. I've, I mean, I've only met him a couple of times at the stage door and I did sort of stalk him at D20, <laughs> Disney's <laughs> D23 conference, but he was like, oh, someone recognized me. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but um, he just, he does. He seems like a really strong, but kind person who leads by example. That's a great, a great one. Oh yeah. Oh, he's the best. And you know, the proof is in the pudding. He's extremely successful and people consider him a huge asset to their production Mm -hmm. and they'll do anything to keep him in their shows. And, uh, and I see why. Well, he went uh, on from Aladdin to Hamilton, right? Yeah. And they actually really wanted him in Hamilton long before he left Aladdin. He'll, he'll stay with that company for as long as he wants to stay because they they're loyal to him and he, he delivers on stage. He delivers off stage. And what more could you ask for? I mean, he's so reliable. Yeah. Incredibly reliable. That's an, a very important distinction on stage and off stage. You can't be in these days. You can't be a mean person off stage at the door. You know, you, you just can't, you have to be good to your fans. You have to be good to your audience. Yeah. One rotten egg. will take the whole company down. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, what advice do you have for your 25 year old self? Oh, to not care so much about the stupid petty things. I'm sure that's what everyone says. I'm so grateful that now that I've gotten a little bit older, I've, I've really started getting to know myself a little bit more, kind of taking the time and in turn, you kind of love yourself more when you get to know yourself more and, and you accept certain things and you don't worry about the, the things that you can't control you stop worrying about other people and what people think. And it it's, it's beautiful. And I'm sure when I'm, you know, hopefully when I'm 90, I'll be like, ah, I don't care about anything, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's great. And it's like just learning to just let things go and getting back to kind of stepping back and thinking about what's the most important thing in life. And that's the priority. It's not, oh, who cares if, you know, Oh, so-and-so didn't like my post. Like, I don't even know. I'm just thinking about something really (laughs) stupid, which, you know, didn't happen in my mid twenties because that didn't even exist (laughs) or did it. I don't even know, but you know, not to worry about the stupid little petty things. Right. What's one thing that you've learned from a mentor that's really stuck with you? I learned not to apologize on stage. This was um, a a professor of mine in college who, when I would go up and perform, he after one, one performance in class, he said, Courtney, you got to stop apologizing on stage for being talented, for being beautiful, for being, you know, what you are. 
um, because I can see it. And you got to walk in with the confidence and knowing, you know, kind of what your talent is and, and stop apologizing that you, that you are that. And I think that's so difficult because you, you have, you teeter on that line of, you know, you don't want people to think you're cocky and, uh, you know, you think you're better than everyone else, or you think that, you know, you're t- more talented than everyone else. I was so worried that I would walk into a room and people would get that kind of vibe for me. But, you know, in this industry, you got to come in with a confidence and that's the difference. It's like, you're confident, you're not cocky, you're confident in who you are and you're confident in your abilities. And that will then in turn make the person behind the table go, oh, I'm confident in your abilities as well to lead my company, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think that was one of the best lessons I've learned. Well, and it's interesting because what's the line that Jasmine says when she stands up to her father and she says, what's the exact line? Do you remember where she's basically saying, don't tell me what to do. I want to choose my own husband. Oh yeah. When she says, you know, what's wrong with a woman running the kingdom? Is is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. She says, um, and why do I even have to marry at all? What's wrong with a woman running the kingdom? You know, it's, it's great. She's like, wait a second. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. I know you have all these ancient rules and, and, and regulations and things that have been in place for a long time, but what about this idea? Yeah. This even seems better, you know? And I remember seeing you because you were such, you owned that moment on stage and I didn't know you at all then, but you owned that moment on stage and it really struck a chord with me. Like, oh my gosh, I love this character. I love this actress <laughs> because you owned that moment. Like, Hey, you know, so that's great. Thank you. That's uh, nice. What advice do you have for someone looking to get onto Broadway or is it into Broadway? I don't know what the right saying is. Yeah. Get, um, get on Broadway, you know, on to, Broadway. to be on Broadway, I to guess is Broadway. what people would say. I, I have two, two, one technical thing would be get an agent. Um, that always helps because you can, you know, get into rooms that you wouldn't normally be able to get into. People take you a little bit more seriously. You have appointment times. You're not wasting your time sort of waiting in line all day. So you have more opportunities if you get an agent. And then the second thing I will say, and I, I feel like it's super cliche to say, but it's just being kind at this sort of level. Everyone's really talented and the talent levels are pretty similar. You know, you're the difference between uh, Tony award winning so-and-so and Tony award winning so-and-so is the fact that they, you know, one person's a little bit taller and has, you know, brown hair versus blonde hair. And, but what's really going to set you apart is, is this person uh, kind? Are they easy to work with? Uh, are they, um, you know, reliable? Uh, do they take their job seriously? Do, are they passionate? Are they jaded? You know, it's all of these things. And also, do I want to have a coffee with them? Do I want to be in tech rehearsals and have like long hours of day and, and, and rely on them to not like lose their cool when they get a note? You know, it's like, you have to have all of these things, but really at the end of it, the core, it's the kindness and the um, ability to, you know, show that kind of kindness on the stage and off the stage. And, and I think that sets you apart because really people want to work with you when you're kind. Absolutely. And in fact, they may take someone who's kind slightly more over someone who's super talented, but just is going to be a menace on set, right? Yeah, they can't, they can't gamble on that. They're gambling on everything else. You know, we're not going to gamble on this person that we can't trust. Right. What their Uh, mood's going to be like today. Oh my goodness. All right. So virtual insanity rapid fire. This is where I ping you with quick questions. Okay. All right. Favorite leadership business or self-help book. I don't have a self-help book. This is terrible. Somebody has to give me one. 
I like Ted talks. Okay. I go on and I search cer- certain subjects and I go Ted talk. Great. Listen, love it. And so um, which has been your favorite one? You know, I really like, uh, I've had issues in the past with, um, trying to figure out my, myself in a relationship. So I love Esther Perel. Okay. Really I good. really like Esther Perel. Yeah. And I like, I like her little backstory on, you know, her upbringing and all that stuff. I love it. I love her. Okay. Good, good, good. Favorite pastime. We used to go to the Outer Banks, North Carolina every year for our family vacations, three weeks a year. And that was just what I look forward to all year. Just the beach. I'm just like a beach bum through and through. <laughs> okay. If you had an entire day with zero meetings, what would you do? I'd wake up for sunrise, go with my boyfriend, you know, he'd probably take photos and do the whole thing. Um, wake up for sunrise, probably come home, uh, and, uh, you know, or go to a really cute little coffee shop and get a, you know, a nitro or an an oat latte, maybe pack a lunch, go back out to the, you know, it's going to be a gorgeous sunny day on, on this day, because it's the most ideal day, day. this perfect day, lay out, jump in the lake, jump in the ocean, have a picnic, you know, have a little cocktail that you bring with you, you know, and then, and then come home, freshen up and, and go out for a nice little dinner and cocktails, like a little date night, come home and, uh, and Netflix and chill. You know what I mean? Just like Netflix, watch your, watch your movie, your TV show, your series that you're on and, and snuggles and then, and then go to bed and do it all over again. Yeah. It sounds like you haven't given that any thought, my friend. (laughs) Well, you, um, you, you live in Chicago, you're jumping in that lake often and it looks cold sometimes. What are you doing? I know. What am I doing? And I hate cold water, but my boyfriend gets me to do it because, you know, it's that old saying, you know, if, if everyone else is doing it, then I'm going to do it, you know? No, I'm kidding. But you know, they have this whole crew in Chicago that jumps in the lake, you know, in mid-November. It's just insane. But it wasn't actually so bad. I jumped in about a week ago and it was, I think, 65. Not terrible. Oh, Last not year we went in like November first, first or second week of November. I think it was 48 degrees or 49 degrees. Mm-hmm. It's okay, like okay, a okay, jump okay. in and come out <laughs> immediately. On a nice sunny uh, day that you kind of thaw out afterwards is kind of nice. Oh my gosh. Well, I think I may have told you, I actually applied to business school there at uh, Kellogg and it was November 1st. And I ended up wearing everything I packed in my suitcase. I had pants, I had skirts, I had sweaters, I had jackets. And I actually rescinded my application because I thought I can't even live here. (laughs) It's so cold. I know it's starting to get cold now. And that's why I'm wearing this comfy and you can't see it, but I'm wearing a a ginormous (laughs) blanket sweater. It's It's just a Dalmatian. It looks like a Dalmatian. It's adorable. What books or magazines do you read in your spare time? I, so I'm currently reading, um, this, this book on my great, great uncle. It's called flying tiger ace because he was a flying tiger in, uh, I'm sure you know what a flying tiger is, but maybe a lot of people don't. Um, It was the American volunteer group, the ABGs in World War II. And so I'm reading about him and they wrote a book and he, you know, he died in combat. And um, so I've learned a lot from my family, but now I'm like reading his whole book now. What's the name of the book? Flying Tiger Ace. Oh, okay. So that's the story about, yes, a story about William, William Reed which is also my, my grandpa's name. What? I know. Insane, right? Oh my gosh. 
And then what magazines do you read? I'm, I'm assuming they're fashion and, and related, but I could be wrong. I don't even really read magazines. I, I get a lot of my, this is terrible information, like through social media, when other people post things like current events and relevant information, I'm like, oh yeah, okay, this is relevant because everyone's posting about it, I guess, you know, but it's so funny. My, my boyfriend watches the news all the time and, and, and reads all about the current events. And, and I'm always, you know, and then he's telling me about all these, you know, carjackings and shootings. And I'm like, oh, I'm stressed. I'm going to avoid reading that today. <laughs> but well, magazines, I'm- yeah. I don't you, really read magazines. Well, you've got a lot going on, but I, you know, like on my nightstand is, which was probably surprising, popular mechanics and fine home building. Oh, and maybe, my and maybe, gosh. maybe like French country living. It's just the most bizarre people. Like you read popular mechanics. I'm like, I know. And sometimes consumer reports, it's just like random, but I think that tells you my true passions, but that's, that's a little weird. Good. That is your true passion. No, I love my sister bought me the book, The Home Edit, which is all about home organizing, which I really love. Um, I've gotten, you know, now that I'm a little bit older, I've gotten into like more like home decor and things like that. And I love Joanna Gaines Magnolia stuff. So Mm. I mean, she's great. Um, You could play her in a TV show. Oh my gosh, I would love that. (laughs) Favorite vacation spot. You've been to a billion places. There has to be one standout. What? Okay, uh, Croatia. Really? Love, I loved Croatia, um, specifically Dubrovnik. And uh, for all of the, you know, Game of Thrones fans, it's King's Landing. So if everyone knows Game of Thrones, you know, it's King's Landing and it's so cool. But really, I think the most stunning, it would be that in Lake Como, the two, Croatia and, and Dubrovnik and Lake Como. I mean, Lake I Como is mean, just like, oh my dreamy. gosh, and Lake and, you know, dreamy. boats and just, dreams, all dreams. Those are both on my list. I have not been to either of those places, but they're on the list. Oh, definitely on the list. Croatia is so trendy right now that I sort of feel like, uh, I don't really want to go there because everyone's going there. But then I'm like, don't be silly. It's amazing. That's why everyone's going. Yes. We went to split as well, which was really nice, but I will say Dubrovnik is it. And it's, it is cheaper. You know, it's like cheaper than going to Santorini or something like that, which is very touristy, which but right. I also love Santorini. So, but I don't need to go back there necessarily, you know? Right. Right. Okay. And then we're going to end on favorite quote. Oh, there's there. I, I do have a couple. Um, one of them. Okay. I don't know if you could edit this out. I, mean, I don't even know if I'm allowed to say this. It's actually a Bill Cosby quote where he okay. says, he says it's, it's, um, uh, you have to decide you want it more than you're afraid of it or something like that. It's, it's, it's really about like the, you know, the fear, don't let the fear, you know, let the desire of something be more important than your fear of it. Like, don't let fear get in the way. And then um, another one of my favorite quotes is when someone, or when people show you who they are, believe them. Mm. That I think is like so crazy because and that's kind of has a negative connotation to it, but, but really, I think that that helps me with not feeling so bad about only wanting to surround myself with people that really inspire me and, and, and feel like they lift me up and I wouldn't want to lift them up. And, you know, it's like, you are who you hang out with. Right. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. you, you want to surround yourself with people that are good people and, and they show you who they are, you don't believe them. Wow. I like that one. 
Thanks. I like it better than the first one. I may not use the first one. Yeah, maybe don't because it's Bill Cosby. But I, I, I love that when I think about that a lot when I'm, when I'm afraid of something, I'm like, but I want it more than I'm afraid of it. So I, I don't know why I'm letting that fear come in. Too bad someone else hasn't said it and we can't just. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think you can dislike a quote just because of who said it. It's still a good one. Courtney, thank you so much. I am just so delighted, A, to see your happy face. You too. And B, to have this opportunity to have you on the podcast and talk about all this stuff. I mean, I I know it's sort of an unusual friendship because like we come from completely different worlds, but I feel like you're my hoppa sister from another mister. So yes, a hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you, you would be, you know, I thought you were going to ask me like who inspires you. And I was going to be like, well, you do me. Oh, stop. (laughs) We've had a lot of good moments though. We've traveled. I've been to a bunch of your shows. We've cried. We've laughed. You've seen my husband sing in his rock band. (laughs) Oh, I sure have. I sure have. And he was rocking. That's for sure. Oh my gosh. Well, I hope that you have a fabulous rest of your day. Thank you so much. And I can't wait to see, you know, I had actually booked tickets for, I think it's February to see the princess show, um, here in orange County. And so hopefully that date doesn't get changed and it seems like I'm going to have to come. I mean, are you touring? So you're doing the national tour for Moulin Rouge. So you'll probably be coming through. So maybe we'll go see you. Yeah. We have three weeks in Costa Mesa and three months in LA. Oh my gosh. Okay. So we'll for sure see you in Costa Mesa and then we'll stage door. We'll stage door, of course. And we'll take you out for a nice meal. And, um, and then I think we also have to go to Mexico to go see Rodney. No, I think we really do. Yeah. That's like, we we have to make that happen. We have to make that happen. I'm going to, I'm going to text you about that because it's a must. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, Rod. <laughs> but we won't understand any of it because it'll be in Spanish. But I know, but <laughs> he's like, you'll but understand okay. the gist of it. <laughs> your dream. Thank you. So good to see you. This is the Mentor DNA podcast, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta, and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amor Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent ya.